And it is a joy to ask you that if you can make a little more room, there might still be people there who need a little room to find. So uh, I'm thrilled to see everyone here again. Uh, I don't know exactly what brought you here this morning. I have a pretty good idea for a lot of you. I know that you're here to see uh, certain people that are special to you get baptized. I know that there are many of you where this is your church home and we see you each and every week. And again, it's always a joy to see you. And uh, perhaps in a group this size or maybe even watching online, there's some that come once or twice a year out of a sense of obligation or duty or tradition or whatever it might be. Something has brought you here to this place uh, to hear familiar stories, to hear potentially familiar songs to see familiar images that talk about an unfamiliar, remarkable event. It is not an understatement, it is not an overstatement to say that today we celebrate the most important day in human history to this point. Christmas gets a lot of good press, and rightly so, but Christmas builds toward Easter. The Son was born so that he might live and die and be raised again. This is the focal point of the Christian faith, the resurrection of Jesus Christ that guarantees and promises our resurrection, our coming alive from the dead. No matter why you are here today, I hope and pray that by the end you understand or at least wrestle with why the resurrection of Jesus Christ matters. Because that story never gets old. And it's more than a story, it's a historical reality, but it's more than a historical reality that calls us to look at something in the past. It's a reality that has to impact us on a day-by-day basis. It's a reality that demands a response from us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is something that has to be more than a thing that I mentally ascribe to. A historical fact that I say that I agree that that happened, it has to be something that I respond to with the whole of my life because there is power in the resurrection of Christ. And we've read through the account out of Matthew's Gospel of the fact of that resurrection. And if you have your Bibles, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, which is not a traditional resurrection passage, uh, but beyond the details that we know and that we continue to sing about and will, of course, continue to talk about, I want to talk about the power that is there in the resurrection of Christ, why it matters now and for eternity. In Philippians, Paul is writing to a church that he loved, a church that was suffering as he suffered even. And in Philippians chapter 3, beginning in verse 7, this is what Paul says. He says, Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. It's for his sake that I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, so that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray. Lord, as we come together today, we pray essentially what we always do. Lord, open our eyes. Lord, we have fallen, we have failed, and we continually fail. When it comes to spiritual things, we bring darkness. We bring misunderstanding and we bring blindness. Lord, open our eyes. 
Open our eyes so that we might see wonderful things in your word. Open our eyes so that we might see the truths that you have placed here. And then, Lord, open our hearts not only to understand, but to respond. Lord, we praise you for your resurrection, for the power that raised Christ from the dead, that power that saves sinners from the consequences of hell. God, I pray that you would apply those things to our hearts today, and I pray that in Christ's name, amen. We're not a people that like to feel powerless. We are a people that like to be in control, and it starts from a very young age. When I have the toy, I have the power, and then it just carries on. We like to be the one that makes decisions in the workplace. When it comes to things like politics, we like to think that at least we have a say in things because life feels better when I have at least one hand on the wheel and I feel like I have some part in keeping this thing moving on down the road. And what a shock it is to our systems when we're confronted with what real power looks like. Something as simple as walking in the ocean and that wave that catches you by surprise and reminds you how very small you are that time when you're in the middle of a storm or that morning when you're jolted out of a dead sleep by an earthquake and you're reminded how small and frail and temporary you really are. Or those times when we come face to face with the majesty of who God is. When we're confronted through seeing Him and His creation, the beauty and the grandeur that He's designed, because creation cries out that there's a God or the truths that we see in His Word that talk about this God who made everything. And who not only made everything, but who keeps everything going, sustaining it by the word of his power. This God who designs and oversees and superintends every part and every piece of his creation. It's a power that we can't even really get our minds around. And we're reminded how very small and powerless we are. And in fact, that is what Easter is. The resurrection of Christ is a demonstration of our powerlessness it reminds me that on my own I was powerless to work my way back to God. But it reminds me that God is mighty and powerful to save. That's a truth worth celebrating. It's why we gather together again, not just on Easter, not just once a year, but weekly to rejoice in the fact that Christ raised from the dead. And we're called to respond. I'm thrilled that you're here, no matter the reason you're here. But I don't want the understanding to be that because Christ died and rose again, we are called to come to church once or twice a year. I don't want the understanding to be that because Christ died and rose again, that we're called to come to church once a week, to give a portion of our income, to be nicer people, to be slightly better versions of ourselves. What I'm talking about is that Christ demands a whole life response from us. The resurrection of Jesus Christ should matter to us each and every day and on through eternity. And so as we work through these few verses in Philippians... I want to show you the power of the resurrection. I want to show you what real power looks like and what it does. And the first thing that Paul says is when he considers the resurrection of Christ, when he considers the reality that Christ would die for him, it gives him the power to have a new and different perspective. And that perspective changes the way he looks at things, particularly like loss. It helps him to understand loss. In verse 7, whatever I had is gain, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Paul looks at his life like an accountant balancing the books. And he says, there are things that I used to think were important and good and gain, but now I realize that they're all a loss. And if you were to kind of back up in the context there, you would see that Paul talks about being born to the right people. 
being born in the right tribe, being circumcised on the right day, being of the right religious sect. When it came to man-made things, when it came to anything that Paul could do on his own, it all seemed so good. If there was a thing to do that would make God like you, Paul had done the thing. And yet Paul says, when I look at the power of the cross, when I look at what Christ has done, it changes my understanding of what loss looks like. Because from the worldly perspective, pain is loss, sorrow is loss, loss is loss. Paul says those good things that I did, that I had, that I was, those are loss. How can good things be lost? How can things like obeying the law be counted as loss? It's not that obedience is bad. It's certainly not that being born to a particular people is bad. It's simply the fact that it is never enough. What Paul finally comes to realize is that his DNA doesn't save him. What he finally comes to realize is that his own efforts on his own in anything don't save him. In fact, it was negative because as hard as Paul tried to work, the more and more convinced he was that his own goodness was enough, the more and more it blinded him to his need for someone to fill the gap that he could not. And so the question that falls down to us is what makes you good enough? What makes me good enough? Why should a holy God accept someone like me? And as Paul evaluates that question, he comes to it and he says that on my own there's nothing. And we have to come to that same conclusion. That it's not a matter of being a better boss or a better employee. That it's not a matter of being a better student, a slightly better husband. It's not a matter of being a slightly better neighbor, a slightly better uh, version of yourself, a slightly more generous person, a slightly nicer person. It's not a matter of working myself up to that next level of goodness. The cross and the empty tomb remind us that any good thing that I do is ultimately, if it's done on my own, eternally powerless. They are not and they'll never be enough. But it doesn't stop there because the resurrection also changes our perspective to understand what has real value, what has real worth, what actually means something. That's what he goes on to say in verse 8. Indeed, I count everything as lost, not just the religious things. I count everything as lost. Why? Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The resurrection makes it possible to see the only thing that does have eternal and lasting value. It has more value than comfort. It has more value than finances. It has more value than my agendas and my desires. Knowing Christ, Paul says, is better. Everything is lost. Knowing Christ is gain. And now might be a good time to remind you or to tell you for the first time, if you don't know, that Paul writes this from prison. Paul doesn't write this as somebody who didn't know what loss looked like. Paul writes this from a place of not knowing whether he will live or die. And yet if you read through Philippians, it is a letter filled with joy. How? How do you live in unknown, uncertain circumstances with joy? Not just a settled understanding that what will be will be, but a real joy and an anticipation of whatever is going to come. Because the greatest gain is knowing Christ. Not just knowing who Jesus is, but knowing Jesus. Having a vibrant, heart-changed relationship with Him. 
knowing who he is and knowing what he's done, knowing what he's promised his people. That's why Paul can say that for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. See, for Christ's sake, Paul had suffered the loss of all things. When Paul talks about loss, he's talking about loss from someone who knows what loss looks like. You read through the book of Acts, and I would encourage you to do that sometime. Life was not easy. Paul suffered hardship after hardship from just things that were difficult, like traveling from one place to another. Long distances were difficult, but he faced suffering from the Jewish leaders who continually pushed back and hated his work. He suffered hatred from people who were enemies of the gospel. Paul suffered the burden of dealing with churches that were imperfect at best. And the sorrow sometimes that even comes with correcting people that you love. Paul was a life familiar with loss. But again, you read through what he writes in Philippians and it is just saturated with joy. He's sitting in a prison cell. He's lost everything of earthly value and somehow he doesn't seem to miss any of it. When I lose things that matter to me, I mourn. When I can't find the remote control, it pulls at me. When I lose something of great value, maybe a letter that my wife wrote me back when we were in high school, I mourn the loss of those things because they matter. But on Monday morning, when that big green truck shows up and empties my garbage bins, I never chase it down the street weeping over what I've lost. Why? Because that was worthless anyway. As Paul sits here in a prison, evaluating what his life has come to, he says that it was worth losing everything because the cross has given him the power to have a renewed and eternally changed perspective on what has real and lasting value. So for Paul, and the call then for us, is this, that to lose everything for the sake of Christ isn't a chore. It's not a burden, it is real. Loss is real. But it invites us to remember that it is eternally worth it. And that new perspective, then, should change the way we interact with the world around us. But that's not the only power that the resurrection brings. Paul recognized that all those things, all the work that he did, really were powerless because they couldn't do what they needed to do. Because sin stains us more deeply than we could imagine. And it's not a matter of washing our hands or changing our clothes. Sin makes us unclean. It makes us impure. And as he continues to think through the work of the cross in his life, he now comes to the idea that the resurrection of Christ gives us the power of a new kind of purity, a different kind of purity. Because when we look at God, we see holiness. To come to an understanding of who God is is to be confronted with perfection in every area, in every part, in every piece, in every way. God is holy. He is perfect. He is other. And if you see that, then it does not take very long to see that I'm not. And on Paul's own, when he was on his own strength, living his life in the way that he thought best, trying to get back to God in the way that he thought best, the best that Paul could do was an external kind of ritual purity. That's what he says in verse 9. He wants to gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. 
under his old life as a Pharisee, the most devout people in Judaism, the ones who were the most fastidious, the most careful about keeping the law, the ones who, if you ask anyone, would have had it all together when it came to pleasing God. They were the ones who were the definitions of purity, if you had asked anyone. And Paul said that wasn't enough. He said, I didn't need that kind of ritual purity that came from the law. And it's not that the law was bad. The law was good. The law is given by God for good reasons. The law, for one thing, shows us what God is like. Don't lie. Why? Because God only speaks truth. Don't steal. Why? Because your God has infinite resources and has promised to provide for His people. Keep the feasts and the festivals. Keep the holy days. Why? Because your God has proven faithful to you and your people over and over and over throughout history and you need to remember His continued faithfulness to His promises yet to come. The law was good. The law shows the beauty and the majesty and the perfection of God. But the law also holds up a mirror to my own failure. Because each of those commandments that demonstrate what God is like shows me that I'm not like that. Don't lie. And I do. Don't covet what your neighbor has. And my heart longs for what my neighbor has. See, that second great purpose of the law is not only to show what God is like, but it's to show me that I am not like God. That's why under the law, it provided those sacrifices that covered over sin for a time. But for Paul and the Pharisees, and I'll say not just for Paul and the Pharisees, for any of us who are attempting to work our way back to God with whatever system we've put in place that makes us feel better about ourselves, whatever checklist we've invented, for those of us who approach God in that way, it becomes a self-made righteousness. Something that we can earn by being just a little bit better, by being just a little bit cleaner, by being just a little bit more pure, or at least more pure than that group over there. It was a system that convinced Paul, and if we're not careful, it's a system that will convince us that on our own power we can be good enough. But now Paul sees the eternal failure in that kind of purity. Paul didn't need a righteousness that came from himself. Paul didn't need a righteousness that came from the law because that's not what the law promised. The law never promised to make you perfect. The law never promised to make you pure. So we have to wrestle with that. What makes you pure? If the standard is God, if the standard is His perfection, if the standard is be holy like I am holy, then what makes us pure enough? I can't work a little harder. I can't give a little more. I can't go a little more often. I can't read a little bit more can never be pure like I need to be. So where does real purity come from? That's where he goes with the rest of nine, verse 9. He doesn't need a righteousness on his own that comes from the law, but what he needs is a real purity. He says, I need that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. The power of the cross the power of the resurrection is that it gives me a righteousness that isn't my own. 
If the standard is be holy like I am holy, God says, then what we need is nothing less than the righteousness of God Himself. And that is what the resurrection of Christ does. That is what we celebrate this whole weekend from Friday to Sunday is the fact that this great exchange has taken place. That on the cross, on Friday, Jesus Christ bore the sins of His people in His own body. Their failures, their darkness, their stain, their impurity, their filth and their failure were placed on Him. Paul puts it this way in another one of his letters in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. That He, that is God, made Him, that is Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. To bear the pain, the suffering, the rejection, to bear the right and just wrath of God against sin. Why? So that we might become, he says, the righteousness of God in Him. God does not simply deal with our failure. God places on us a purity that was completely foreign to us. He covers us with the righteousness of Christ. The world will have you work yourself to the death to be better. And it'll be a hamster wheel that you never get off of because you will never be good enough. Every system, every cult, every approach to God outside of righteousness in Christ is an exhausting, eternal failure because we can't do it. And that is such good news. Because Christ has accomplished what we could not. A real purity, not an external washed hands, changed clothes purity, a new heart purity. That is the power of the resurrection. A power to make you actually clean before this God who demands absolute perfection. And that transaction, that trading of my sin for Christ's righteousness has continuing power in our lives. The penalty for sin was paid on the cross. When Christ rose from the dead, His resurrection, His coming up from the dead guarantees our resurrection. It means that we don't have a dead hope and a dead Savior and a dead religion that's built on tradition and history. We have a living hope, a Christ who ever lives, the author of Hebrews says, to make intercession for us at the right hand of the Father to plead our case, to guarantee our eternal inheritance. And that matters to us today because the resurrection gives us the power to have an entirely new purpose in our life. And as we look to verse 10, Paul's going to help us see what that new purpose, that new pursuit of our life has to be. And it kind of picks up in the middle of a sentence. He starts, that I may know him. And really, what he's pointing back to is he counts everything as loss. This is the continued thought from 7 and 8. I count everything as loss. I am willing to give up everything for the sake of knowing Christ. Why? Verse 10, so that I may know him. Paul says the cross, the resurrection has given me this new purpose. And this new purpose is not to search for meaning in anything else. The new purpose in my life is so that I may know Christ. So that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection. That's the action attached with the change in perspective. 
The power to change perspective says that everything else is worthless. And now the power of the resurrection says that I am free and called and expected to abandon everything so that I can pursue this knowing of Christ. Because when you know what's valuable, you pursue it. We chase after things that have value with our time, with our resources, with our affections, with our intentions, and we've done it since we were little kids. If you collected anything, you collected things that had value, at least to you. When I was little and growing up and I had the baseball cards and the boxes and boxes of those things stuffed everywhere, I did not spend a whole lot of time looking for the backup right fielder for the San Francisco Giants, or anybody from the Giants for that matter. Those guys lived in your bike spokes. No, I looked for the cards that were rare, that had value. Why would we give up anything in our life for something of no value? But if there is only one thing that has eternal value, why would we hesitate to give up anything for it? Guys, how much of our lives are wasted? None of us like to think that we're sitting around wasting time. But how much of our lives are wasted chasing after things that do not matter? The next financial windfall, the next relationship, the next thing that numbs the pain of this world, the next thing that satisfies the lusts of my flesh, the next thing that'll be dead and gone as soon as I'm over it. And yet all of those things, all that they do is they promise satisfaction, don't they? They cry out that this is going to be the one, this is going to be the thing that finally makes you feel fulfilled. And if that's the case, why do we live in a world that is crushed under the weight of its own expectations that are never met? Because nothing satisfies. Nothing satisfies but Christ. Paul says, I would give my life for the pursuit of knowing Christ and to know the power of His resurrection. At this point, Paul realizes that there is no power in himself. No power, whether he was born on the right, uh, the right people at the right time, circumcised on the right day, pursuing the right course of religion, none of that power mattered. There's no power to be right or righteous on your own. Not for Paul and not for you and me. It doesn't matter if you are the head honcho at work or just another cog in the wheel. It doesn't matter if you have a bunch of letters and degrees after your name. It doesn't matter if you barely survive school. There is no power that is innate in you. No matter what late night TV preachers and charlatans might tell you, there's no power in you or I to speak anything into existence. There is no power in you or I to send out vibes into the universe to create our own and craft our own reality. There's no ability on our behalf to define our own truth. You and I, at our core, are created, finite, powerless beings. This is power. The power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. A power that makes those who are spiritually dead, eternally condemned to hell and separation from God, alive in Christ. A power that took you from being a spiritual cadaver who could not even reach for the cure that didn't exist to someone who is made alive in Christ, called a son or daughter, a fellow heir to the kingdom. And not only that, but made able to live in light of those things. Because that power that saved Paul not only saved him for the purpose of knowing him, but it gave him the power 
to be like Christ. He says, so that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and I may share in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death. The resurrection of Jesus Christ, you ready? Gives you and I to suffer, the power to suffer as Christ suffered. And you say, I'm not really sure you understand how sales works. Suffering doesn't sell. You're right. You and I are averse to suffering. That's why I don't go to the gym. The gym is a place that embodies suffering until, until you realize that you either lose your weight or lose your life, and then suddenly suffering becomes worth it, doesn't it? So how is it that Paul can, with no hesitation and no apology, and in fact with joy, say, the resurrection and the power of the resurrection compels me to suffer as Christ has suffered? Because Paul knew that his suffering was never wasted, not for a moment. Not a single day in a single prison cell. Up to the moment that he would lose his life for the sake of the gospel, none of that suffering was wasted. And in fact, if we were to go all the way through the book of Philippians here, and we won't do it, but if you go back to chapter 1, he reminds them of the same thing. In chapter 1, he's talking to these people, and he's introducing the letter, and he says, don't don't be disturbed by those people that are your enemies. He said, don't let that bother you or conflict you. He says, because those people that are your enemies are actually doing you a great service. As they persecute you, they are proving something. They are proving their own destruction and they're proving your salvation. In other words, why you suffer identifies where you stand. Paul says that as I suffer and as you suffer for the sake of Christ, it reminds you that you are no longer part and parcel of the world around you. It reminds you that you are different. And that's how, in Philippians 1.29, he can say the almost unthinkable, he can say that it has been grace gifted to you to suffer and to be saved. That both of those things are gracious gifts of God. Suffering as a way of refining us and reminding us of purpose. But what's on the other side of that? Not only does it show us that we're related to Christ as we suffer for him, that Paul doesn't simply look so that he might share in his sufferings, but he says that he might share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Why? In verse 11, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, whatever it takes, through any means possible, I am striving and pushing forward to one thing, and that is so that I might attain the resurrection from the dead. The power of Christ's resurrection compels me to pursue the reality of my own resurrection. Not that Paul is working for what is going to happen, but he is straining with his entire life so that he might see that. How is it that a man who doesn't know whether he's going to live or die write a joyful letter? How does a man who doesn't know whether he's going to live or die come to the point where he says earlier in the letter, you know, if it were up to me, I don't even know what I would choose. To be set free would be good for you, but to be put to death... That's eternal good for me. How do you come to that point? Because he understands that he's not living for anything in this world. This world has nothing more that holds his attention. There's nothing more that compels his affections. Only straining forward to the resurrection that is to come. If you're in Philippians 3, let your eye kind of fall down a little bit to verse 20. 
This puts it in a different way, but it's the same perspective. Philippians 3.20, Paul says, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That's what he's looking for. See, Paul realized that when it comes to this world, he is a temporary resident. An alien, a sojourner, and a stranger, and that this was not his home. Why in the world would he spend his life investing in something that was not his to begin with? No, instead he spends his life pursuing something that will actually last. The resurrection of Jesus Christ promises a better purpose a more lasting home, an eternal reward. So what does the resurrection call us to do? The resurrection of Jesus Christ today calls us to know what has real worth and value. Knowing what has value is the difference between the flawed Walmart diamond and the priceless heirloom. Being able to gauge what has value is the difference between the good investment home and the money pit. Understanding what has value is the difference between searching your whole life to find fulfillment now and finding the one thing that truly matters that has eternal good. So here's the offer, Easter Sunday, 2022. Respond to the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that response must come from everyone sitting here today, whether you've been in church one time, a thousand times, or, you know, since before you even came out of the womb. Here's three things that I want you to evaluate as you walk away from this search service. First of all, where's your priority? As you evaluate what has worth and value in your life, how do you assign rankings to those things? And as you examine what in your life has value, as you examine what you pour your time and your money and your attention into, ask yourself this, how long will it last? Will any of that outlive you? Will any of that have eternal value? Secondly, what are you depending on to make you pure? One day, you and I and everyone who has ever been born will stand before the God of all creation. And the evaluation will not be based on how well you think you did. It will not be based on whether I was slightly better than the person who came before me or after me. The evaluation will be, were you holy as I am holy? And on our own, we universally fail that judgment. What makes you pure? Will you come before God with your own goodness? Or will you stand covered in the righteousness of Christ? And finally, what are you pursuing? Each and every one of us will spend the rest of our lives chasing something. You will spend your time and your effort doing something, pursuing something, going after something. I invite you to consider whether it has any eternal value.
if you're chasing the next thing that will make you feel better, that will make you feel richer, that will make you feel satisfied, maybe that will make you feel numb, I invite you to lay it down and pursue something that has better lasting value. If you say that you've come to Christ, if you say that you are one of his people, but you spend an awful lot of your time chasing the things of this world, I would invite you to consider where your priorities are. I would invite you to understand that the power of the resurrection calls us to be a people who are fundamentally different from the world around us. Not people who don't suffer, but people who suffer differently. Not people who don't know what they want, but people who know the only thing that matters. Not a people who enjoy pain, but a people who can put it in its proper perspective. I pray that today you understand the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, you rose from the dead, victorious over sin and death. And as you did that, you guaranteed the internal inheritance of a people that you would call to yourself. Lord, I pray that every heart in this building, every heart that considers this message would respond that we would place our faith in the finished work of Christ and that we would live in light of that salvation. Lord, will you save people even today? And Lord, for those of us that know you, may we live in the power of your resurrection, not in fear and doubt, but in the settled knowledge that you have overcome what we never could. And Lord, we pray that you would come quickly. that our living Savior would return for his people. What a glorious day that will be. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.